Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This is Sandy Clough and Chandro Tar on Mile High Sports. Well, you'll be forgiven if you don't notice it sneaking up on you. But the Colorado Rockies, as well as all of Major League Baseball, every single team in action tomorrow on opening day, 14 Cy Young Award winners expected to take the hill. None of those for the Rockies, of course. They've never had one of those. But the Rockies go into a season in which there is very little, if any, hope that they will be significant over any stretch of the season. But the idea behind what the Rockies can do is interesting. They are breaking camp, apparently, with the idea of top prospect Ezekiel Tovar, or close to it, depending on how you feel about Zach. Oh, I think he has to be. Yeah. Vina seems to have a a ceiling where people think it might be more significant down the road, but you're talking about the closest to the bigs now. It's it's Tovar. And Elihiris Montero acquired in the Nolan Arenado trade at third with Ryan McMahon moving to second due to the unfortunate season-ending injury of Brendan Rodgers, who was right. coming into his own last year and was one of the best reasons to pay attention to the Rockies upcoming uh, He year. was. Uh, I thought in many ways he was their best offensive player so last year. You end up missing out on him, but McMahon moves to second. And... For the Rockies, there is some interesting depth there. Of course, Nolan Jones, a player that they acquired, one of the uh, uh, formerly a top actual 50 prospect in baseball, uh, also comes up at third base, an opportunity for him maybe to over the course of the season to make some noise there. But the Rockies are doing what they are loath to do, and that is take some young guys and just say, all right, go out there and play. Really, the last time something like that happened, especially on that side of the infield, was probably Troy Tulowitzki and Garrett Atkins. And where they basically said, all right, we have two young guys. We're going to go for it. And I look at that as the tiniest bit of optimism because too often, and I'm not going to spend this time just jumping on the Rockies, but the Rockies always seem to have a, a certain amount of disillusion of what they're looking at. And in this case, you know, you're, you're retaining, uh, in other words, a, they're delusional. Yes. The, the, yeah. the you're, you're retaining the Daniel Bards and the CJ Crones of the world. And they're not, they're nice players. Nothing wrong with that. But when the Rockies actually, if, and when they ever become actual contenders to make the playoffs again, those two guys aren't going to play significant roles. So to my mind, those are the kind of players. Cool. You got a reclamation project. You reclaimed them. I Great. like a Bard story. Now listen, listen to Bard, and to a lesser extent, Crone. But Bard in particular, love the story, and he's a fellow who's easy to root for. And he has performed, I think, beyond reasonable expectations. But Rocky's expectations seem always to be unreasonable, and particularly with young players. And I know with Montero, he was part of the Arenado deal, and they tried to shield him to an extent. 
But you know what? Uh, when the minor leagues were shut down during the COVID year, he was obviously inactive. He had a terrible year in 2019. Um, I I just don't know. And 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 the Rockies spent a lot of time trying to uh, justify bad deals they make, and that puts pressure on Montero in this case. But the pressure should be on the Rockies and on Schmidt, the GM even more so than Bud Black, the manager, to correctly, I, I say, handle these players, bring them along in proper fashion. And I, uh, I'm i interested to watch Montero, but there's much more pressure on him than there is on Tovar, for example. Yeah. Stop. I, my I, way of thinking. And I, I happen to think McMahon uh, has a chance – for a terrific year uh, touched on that point the other day, but uh, yes, th- th- this is a little bit different. And for hardcore baseball fans, there's a certain appeal watching players perhaps grow up and blossom before your very eyes. But again, uh, given their playoff appearances in 17 and 18, isn't it especially disappointing that the best we can hope for with respect to the Rockies is the avoidance of yet another 90 or 90 plus loss season. Yeah. And it's hard. One of the things that, you know, people look at it. I think we, one of the things I get a lot with folks is the idea that people will ask me about the Rockies and say, well, you know, if they lose a hundred games, will that, that wake ownership up? It's hard to lose. That's the problem. And that's exactly where I was going to go. The challenge is because you're at Coors Field, you're going to occasionally have a, a day where you run into a couple balls and you're going to basically accidentally win a game against a team that you otherwise wouldn't. And that is, that'll happen three or four times a season, which is just enough to avoid having you lose a hundred. So would that make the Rockies feel that oh, we're still kind of on track? Yeah, I think it actually has. And I think that the down on 20th and Blake, the ownership tends to look at it and say, well, we've never had a hundred loss season. We, uh, we must be doing okay. You know, these other teams have done worse, so we're not them. Uh, It's the old, uh, I look at it the way people used to look at, you know, reality TV shows a little bit. Well, I might be a mess, but I'm not as much of a mess as that person. And so, you know, you feel sort of oddly good about yourself. That's the way the Rockies, I think, tend to think about it. But, you know, they, they went and signed Chris Bryant, bidding against nobody. And I have nothing against Chris Bryant, but I mean, that was the Rockies pursuing a white whale. They thought they were going to get Chris Bryant, the draft in which they ended up with with John Gray. Ever right. since then, the Rockies have wanted Chris Bryant, and they were just going to get Chris Bryant, period. Chris Bryant, his credit, uh, by the way, he's moving from left to right this year. Make of that what you will, based um, on who's normally playing There's some right. interesting theories that uh, you mentioned to me the other day off the air. Yeah, there's, there's some. that shift. <laughs> There's some interesting moves potentially uh, when you're looking at maybe having the, to do with running back and forth from the dugout. Yeah, yeah, it's a shorter distance to right than it is to left. It is, although in right field here, as uh, both people who played it well and played it badly have demonstrated down through the years, right field is a hell of a lot tougher in this ballpark uh, than in most ballparks. Although not markedly tougher than left. Left is tougher than people think. Because of the sheer expanse, the, the, of the yeah, the, the size, right? The size is is immense. So left field is ordinarily considered, 
you know, certainly the guy with the weakest arm of the three tends to be, uh, you know, acceptable in left field if he can, he has any kind of range. Uh, but in this part, you really have a lot of ground to cover. So it, it in this part, it, it, I, I think you saw it with Larry Walker in right field. Larry Walker, if his health hadn't been as much of an issue as it usually was, uh, you could have put him in center. That's how good he was. Oh, sure. He was a sensational right fielder. I, I have never seen, and I saw Roger Maris a little bit uh, in the days of my youth when Roger Maris could still play. Um, and I always thought Roger Maris, uh, for all the notoriety he got for breaking the home record and all the abuse he got for following it up with less than scintillating home run seasons, he was always a terrific defensive right fielder. Larry Walker was better. And Clemente is the gold standard to me. And I'm not saying Larry Walker was better defensively than Clemente, but I do believe that he was in the same class. Now you can argue which one was better. I thought Larry Walker's instincts as a right fielder were virtually as good as Clemente's were, and his raw physical tools were a match for Clemente's. Except for that one time he handed the uh, the ball to a kid. Well, he lost two track of left in, in Montreal, yeah. which is one of the great play, baseball bloopers. But he was, a, you know, Larry <laughs> Walker was underrated as Roger Maris was as both a defensive right fielder and a base runner. Yeah. But in, in any case, okay, uh, Brian and Wright. But the, the interesting thing there is that you've got Charlie Blackman, uh, who is is still, I think, uh, at least a functional hitter, uh, but who I, likes I, I to play. Removing the shift the is going to help Charlie Blackman uh, probably okay. more than but, any other Rocky. It might help. But uh, Charlie Blackman, even with the introduction of the DH, and especially perhaps with the introduction of the DH in the National League, uh, is, is not ready to concede that he needs to be an everyday DH. He wants to play sometimes in right field. And I suppose it's something that could probably be worked out, but it's an interesting thing that you have Bryant who wants to play right field and Blackman who wants to play right field and you can't play them both. Well, my guess is what you're going to see is you're going to see these guys platooning at both. I, I think for, for, age purposes for health purposes, I think you're going to see either Bryant and Wright or Blackman and Wright and the other DHing, and I think you're going to see it regularly. They signed uh, Jerks and Profar uh, late in the process. He's going to take over in left. Yeah. That's that's where he plays. Randall Gritchick is back uh, for one more season. That uh, hurt right now, but when hurt right now, when yeah. Gritchick is is ready, he's going to go back to to center. Well, yeah, I I I agree with that, but uh, I think within that. Notion contains uh, an implicit warning. If you're expecting more than 115 games out of either one of them, uh, you are being somewhere south of delusional, but not terribly far south of delusional. Uh, A friend of mine uh, is a major Cubs fan, uh, knows and admires Chris Bryant, uh, or at least as close to people who are close to Chris Bryant. Sure. And last year, uh, I think before the season began, I said 120 games, and he said, that's way, way too optimistic. He'll be lucky to play in 80. Yep. 
it'll be below 100 in any case, which, of course, we know it now to be true. Certainly was. Yes. Now, Bryant, of course, uh, has, has been saying all the right things about wanting to do better this year. Now, you believe it. It's just it's just health and health for well, the Rockies. Actually, in some offensive areas, he did fine for the games he, just, he played he just last didn't year. He get to play, right. It was unusual that he did not hit a single home run at Coors Field. Right. He hit five on the road. And none but of course. But yeah, that that's somewhat odd. They are dealing with injuries, of course. Paid him one hundred eighty-two million dollars yeah. to hit zero home runs at Coors Field for whatever the reason, not what they had in mind. Not ideal uh, to be sure. But I, I think you will get uh, hard to imagine be a worse season there. But but you know we'll see. But for the Rockies, you know already already you know Rogers lost to the year. Grichik is hurt. Antonio yeah. Senzatella won't be back till May, leaving their rotation, right. which is always rather thin. Well, even more so. Beyond Marquez, Marquez Freeland, and Gomber. Freeland. And then Gomber, I guess, number three. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Yeah. And then you're probably uh, Jose Urena and, yeah. and Ryan right. Feltner is the guy that yeah. gets the crack right. uh, coming out of the box. But, you know, Daniel Bard, nice story. Uh, Bard's fastball is down six miles an hour from last year. Uh, wow. That's a problem. That is a problem. Uh, it's also a problem. Well, what is it, 96 to 90 it, or something? It, it was. Right he, had it, he had it vice coming 97, 99. It's hovering around 92, 93 okay. right now. And, and I mean, you can get by with 92, yeah. 93. But, 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 but you can't simply come in and throw fastballs if you're throwing them at 92 and 93. And a guy that uh, turned majorly hitters catch up with in those. June. Uh, you do wonder if that drop off is permanent. Oh, and of I, course, don't, I don't for, see him getting back to 97, yeah. 99. And for Bard, let's face it, control has been. An issue. Oh, yeah. And Absolutely. if you were to, you're gonna hover now at ninety two, ninety three, you gotta be yeah, painting yeah, corners. You better be painting corners. So yes. that's a concern. Absolutely. So you have to be much more precise. You know, th- this is not gonna be a good Rockies team. The, the hope is that they can no. provide a little oh. promise. You know, the Tovar looks good, that Montero looks good, that uh, some of the younger players that that they are gonna have an opportunity to see over the course of the year look good. You know, there's sort of a uh there's there's just not a lot to look for. Which is really disappointing. And as, as the Rockies kind of do what they do, uh, you know, I don't blame Bud Black for this, but I will say that Bud Black has the lowest set of expectations of any manager in the majors. And over a while when you know that, I mean, you know, do you think there's a big part of Bud Black's mentality this offseason going, I really need to get us close to making a playoff spot? No, because he knows it doesn't matter. It, Almost never has mattered for Rockies managers. Once Don Baylor took the Rockies to the playoffs in their third year of existence, in their second full season, well, it wasn't even a full season in 95, I guess, technically, right? Right. 144 games instead of 162. But in any case, it was a season played to conclusion. Mm -hmm. All right? So let me put it that way. Their second year that was played to conclusion. They make the playoffs. So with Don Baylor, it was a little different. Now, they had winning teams in 96 and 97, but when they slipped to 77-85, which would be more than acceptable now, in 1998, they fired him uh, and brought in uh, Buddy Bell, mm-hmm. as I recall. Yes. Or Leland. No, it was Leland that succeeded and then Buddy Bell after Leland. You're correct. Leland was uh, 1999. Right. It did not go well, and Leland sort of quit on him, and they quit on him, and it was a mess, and 
we but you don't know need what? to say anything more than that. But but since then, with the possible exception of Hurdle in 08, carrying over to 09, where even at the beginning of the year he had to get off to a decent start, didn't they fired him and they promoted Jim Tracy. Rocky managers have been judged by how infrequently they criticize ownership more than by wins and losses. Which brings me back a little bit to Jim Leland. And and, and maybe that was and the canary. Leland knocked ownership. That was the canary in the coal yeah. mine, I think, for Rockies fans, is to realize you had a, a manager who had success, got to Colorado, felt that he was promised an effort level from ownership that he did not receive, and harped on it. And that fell apart after one simple season. But that was probably the warning to Rockies fans that, look, uh, you had you had a, a skipper and, and, a, and for a while part of baseball bought into the fact that, okay, maybe this expansion team might turn into something. And then you, you got a manager who had the bona fides. And then he quickly realized, oh, wait, my ownership isn't actually interested in creating a championship. And I don't culture. think he behaved especially well. He didn't. He, he, and he was, it, he that was, was the cause of... Uh, he was petulant some in, conflict. Some, in a lot of that, Yeah, and, sure. and it caused some conflict. Uh, uh, I remember uh, uh, Rich Donnelly, who was a coach on that staff, and a good guy, mm-hmm. and, and, and a guy who uh, uh, was one of the few management people in sports who admitted he listened to an even more... Uh, damaging for his uh, image within the industry. He liked talk radio. And uh, <laughs> Always I, at dangerous. one point, I was critical of Leland when he, in my estimation, had, had quit on the team about two months into the season. Just, you know, quit on the team. And, you know, listen, that, that was the year of Columbine. Uh, he was going to move his family out here after Columbine. That didn't happen. He lived out of his office quite famously. Uh, would go down the street uh, after games and uh, um, do various things there uh, <laughs> beyond playing the piano, which he was actually quite good at. Uh, but but anyway, he, he he would go then back to Coors Field and sleep in his office. Right. Literal, I'm not exaggerating. Yeah. Uh, but I had criticized him and Rich Donnelly – was a regular listener, happened to like me, at least until that night. Uh, And uh, to his credit, called in to defend his friend, Jim Leland. Um, But that that, uh, was a contentious time. And Leland broke the cardinal rule, uh, which has essentially existed for all Rockies managers. Uh, Don't criticize ownership. Don't criticize ownership. And we'll keep you on. It's just that simple. And so for the Rockies, hard to believe there are expectations that are that are anything realistic, except for hopefully you have some nice days and uh, occasionally a little bit of fun. And there's going to be a lot of people cheering on the visiting teams. And that's yeah. what the Rockies get. Well, that's it. And, and they're able to draw well. And I'm sure they'll draw reasonably well uh, this year. One point I want to make, because we uh, talked earlier about the AFC West turning out to be vastly overrated last right. year, except for Kansas City, mm-hmm. of course. <laughs> yeah. Right. Not over. I think the National League West, and I know people say, "What well, the Dodgers aren't uh, underrated." People talk about the right. Dodgers all the time. Of course, look at predictions for this coming season and find that at least as many people 
fancy the prospects of the Padres, not only to win the division, but to win the National League pennant and perhaps the World Series, at least as much as they fancy Dodgers prospects. The National League West is colossally well, underrated because the, even the Giants and the Diamondbacks are decent teams, but they'll be buried behind the Dodgers and the Padres, right. or the Padres and the Dodgers in the National League West. And where do you think that leaves the Rockies? Right where they usually Whether are. they win yeah. 70 games, 75 games, or 65 games, they will be dead last once again in the National League. In Vegas, the over-under is 66. So that sounds actually just about right. But one of the things to think about, of course, for baseball, uh, before we move on to the Rockies, is the idea that uh, out of the rules changes, you know, no more shifts, larger bases. Uh, some of those things are, you know, like have been happening. I do, too. Love them. Here, here, let me tell you a little something about the, the pitch clock uh, that, of course, is coming, that, of course, is cause, cause of much consternation from the traditionalists. So let me let me read you the rule here uh, from Rule 32, Section 2. The umpire shall call a ball on the pitcher each time he delays the game for failing to deliver the ball to the batsman for a longer period than 20 seconds. That rule I just read to you, by the way, was from 1901. One, uh, for the traditionalists who would like to think they're aware of baseball history going back, uh, oh, over a century. One, I just read that passage. That's right. It's been That's on the right. books since nineteen. Absolutely, been on the books. One, it's been. This on the is books. a hundred and twenty plus year uh, rule. Uh, it, it's just the baseballs deciding to actually enforce uh, it. Exactly right. Exactly right. And I, I can the traditionalists who are. Balking. Nobody on earth was alive when there wasn't a pitch clock. It just wasn't visible. You have to let go, but please let go. Don't 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 waste our time with with complaints about about that. Now it won't help the Rockies, but all these rules changes are good for baseball. I can live without the ghost runner. Honestly, I can. Uh, I don't like that one, uh, but I, I understand the motivation behind it that they don't want, uh, you know fossils sometimes and i'm among them uh through the years i don't mind seeing an occasional 17 18 19 20 inning baseball game but you know what fans who are attending the games don't like 17 18 19 20 inning games because they have to go home and go to work the next and sometimes players have to catch a flight they don't love it exactly Exactly. So same same reason behind the shootout in the nhl that everybody got upset i'm willing to and Actually, you know why I liked the shootout and always did? Fans liked it. Yeah, fans liked it. Fans liked it. Fans did like that because apart from the other day when we had 14 rounds (laughs) before the somebody finally scored, for the most part, the shootout ends after three rounds. There there is an end point. Not not theoretically, it theoretically is endless, but there there is an end point and the fans love it. They love it. And they say, well, it's a, it's like having a foul shooting contest at the end of an NBA game. No, fans would not be entertained by that. Fans love the shootout. It's one-on-one. Foul shot is not one-on-one. Foul shot it, it, to decide a game is absurd. A shootout to decide a game, the Olympics do that. Yeah, yeah. And people all the time are talking about hockey purists, how much they love the international game. Well, the the... Baseball season starts tomorrow. Over the course of the season, I'm gonna I'm gonna 
I'm going to slowly win you over to the Ghost Runner because there's reasons that you could like it. So we'll talk about it, but that's for another time. The Avalanche and the Wild have a monumental game of the year coming up tonight. Altitude's Katie Goss will join us to break it down next on Mile High Sports. Tell me, do you hate me or do you want to date me? It's kind of hard to tell because your eyes are looking crazy. So why are you coming over? Now more with Sandy Clough and Sean Drotar. Presented by Burnham Wall. Hire the winner at BurnhamWall.com. This is Sandy and Sean on Mile High Sports. Welcome back to Sandy and Sean on Mile High Sports. Joining us now, we're happy to have Katie Goss, the host and reporter for Altitude TV, covering the Colorado Avalanche. You also saw on ESPN covering the Isabel Cup of late as well. But that was out in Arizona. You can follow her on Twitter at Katie underscore Goss. That's G-A-U-S. Katie, thanks for joining us. Hey, guys. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, obviously, tonight is uh, the game of the year for the Avalanche. They have been playing very, very good hockey. But at the same time, so are the Wild, which makes this a pretty hard game to break down. But obviously, from your perspective on the Avalanche, uh, what is their confidence level, not only in this game, but just in general over the last couple of weeks as they've gotten a little healthier and really gotten rolling as a unit? Yeah, I think it's safe to say that this group is riding the highest level of confidence that they have all year. I was actually just chatting earlier about it. Ever since that game back in January where they lost to the Blackhawks, I feel like this team kind of just took a look in the mirror and said, all right, <laughs> We're gonna. It, this is it. This is do or die. We're either we're either doing this and we're not. And they said, absolutely, we are doing this because it, they haven't looked back. They've gotten so much better. And whether that's been getting healthier, certain players just elevating their game to even higher levels than we've seen, whatever it may be, goaltending goal for sure. That's definitely a part of it as well. All those are factors into why this team is playing with as much confidence as they have right now. You've got Nathan McKinnon. You can't really ever say that he's you know, playing his best hockey because it feels like he's always playing such a high level, but it does seem like he's hitting a new stride here in the month of March. He knows when the games are meaningful. We actually talked to coach about this after that last game in Anaheim. Nate knows when it's time to turn it up to another gear. He's such a high competitor. And I think you're seeing the rest of the team picking up on that energy and, and following suit, but it definitely is going to be the biggest game, the toughest challenge that they've faced. They've had a pretty Pretty friendly schedule up until so the, tonight, and then Dallas, of course, coming up as well. So this is going to be a good test. Goaltending-wise, it's a great battle between two of the top guys in the league. Defensively, these are the two top teams in the Central Division in terms of the fewest goals allowed. Uh, on the other side, you've got a lot of offensive scoring power, although the Wild are obviously without Kaprizov. But, yeah. you know, this team is going to be, I mean, this is playoff hockey. This is this is for for the top of the central division. The stakes are as high as it gets. I think this group is is really excited, and you couldn't really ask for it to hit at a better time because they're playing great hockey right now. You have made four or five sensational points in just that one answer. Uh, that's that's more than Sean and I make combined uh, in in a two hour show on uh, on most days. So I, I I'm a little at a loss as to where, where to go from here because there are four or five ways uh, to go. But uh, your your point about January 12th in Chicago, uh, you're around this team. 
And I'm wondering if you could provide some insight as to why that was the demarcation point uh, in this season, because uh, the Bruins lost last night. So the Avalanche and Bruins over that stretch of 33 games, 34 now for the Bruins, have the same number of points, but the Avalanche mm-hmm. have 51 points in 33 games. The Bruins now have 51 points in 34 games. So officially, since January 12th, at, at least over a period of 33 games, uh, 34 for Boston, the Avalanche have been the best team in the league. What mm-hmm. was behind their realization that at 20-17-3, and three, even with all the injuries, enough was enough. I think a I think a big part of it is when you look at your opponent, right? And and that's always the scary thing about some of these games that we call trap games where, you know, by all accounts it should be an easy win. And at that point of the season, the Blackhawks were about as bad as it had it could get in terms of, of an opponent. They're in a full blown rebuild. They've got nobody left. And to lose that game and to have been on the skid that they were on it was the dad's trip. I mean, there were so many factors that just made that loss. I mean, it, it was it was a little bit embarrassing, right? And sometimes to have to be hit with that realization of this isn't who we are. And I think when you're coming off of a Stanley Cup win and you right. realize that you have to you have to win, you have to go through a whole other season just to get back to the playoffs. That can be a lot to to, to handle, and. There's going to be highs and lows of a season, but I think the response is the most important thing. And, and whether it was just that opponent or, or whatever the circumstance was, that was the moment where this team decided that we can be so much better than this. And we even, even looking back at the numbers, I remember myself and Connor McGee, we were all posting about what the record looked like since then. Fans yeah. were actually <laughs> surprised because this season has felt emotionally draining with the amount right. of injuries. And I right. think. People, people almost didn't realize how good this team really has actually still been because we're spoiled. We expect to win every game because this team is capable of winning every game, but that simply isn't how it works. Um, so just to be able to, to take that moment and use that as a positive motivation, whether it was that game specifically or, or it was a combination of things. You know, We see a lot of this group, but at the end of the day, what is said between the coaches and them and what happens inside those closed doors, whatever it was, it worked. And this team has been absolutely a different group since that. Combine that now with the fact that they're finally getting rewarded for all the hard games, playing with so many call-ups and dealing with so many injuries and having to have a different lineup and a different roster every night. I think now finally getting some consistency, we're seeing just what this team really could have looked like all year long had they been healthy at the same time. Uh, So it's kind of a different weird combination of, of a lot of things, but the bottom line and the most important part is this team is playing the best they have all year, heading into the most important stretch of the season, going up against an opponent that's also playing really good hockey, and they have absolutely everything that it takes to be able to win. And you also have to consider the fact that they're still missing some incredible players who are, by all accounts, going to return. Arturi Lekkanen will be back. Josh Manson is hopefully going to be back soon as well. I mean, we just got Darren Helm back. It's pretty amazing to think that this group is as good as it has been over that stretch, and there's still more to be added. 
I mean, that's, it's wild to think about the, the, how good this group can actually continue to be. We talk quite frequently on this program about the calm and the poise of Bednar, uh, who never panics. However, right. there have been occasions this year on which he has either had to push the players or convince the players that they had to push themselves, somehow get right. that message across. And I thought in a very subtle way recently, he, he made the point this month, as great as it's been for the Avalanche, they had two previous chances uh, for first place. One came in Dallas and they got killed. Okay, you can understand that. It was Saturday game. National TV, Dallas is up for it. But last week, also a national TV game against the Pittsburgh Penguins, it seemed that Pittsburgh's urgency trumped uh, the avalanche incentive to go ahead and possibly move into first place. And now they're getting a third crack at it. And it's interesting to me that Bednar has mentioned that. And, and 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 not in a in a way that would belittle the previous two efforts, but in a way to suggest we're running out of games. We may not have another chance at first place. Right. Absolutely. And we kind of always deal with this, like how to ask guys about how much they pay attention to the standings. Right. There are so many players and coaches who will you know, for whatever, to say, oh, we, we really don't focus on that. We just have to worry about our, ourselves. And, and that's fine. But I think we all know that they're still humans, too. There's no chance that they're not looking. Georgiev even jokingly admitted to us that he likes to check the standings after they win because it's more fun. So these guys are aware of what's at stake. I think in that Pittsburgh game, it was a battle for a team trying to get first place versus a team, Pittsburgh, that was full-blown battling for their playoff lives. Absolutely. I mean, that yeah. that urgency was, was, was visible, right? They obviously had what was more incentive, and it showed in their gameplay. I think you make a great point that the coach is right. This, this, this matchup, the game in hand, everything right. on the line here tonight really is not only maybe one of the last chances, but probably the best one. So I think these teams match up well. I think that maybe... You know, fool me once, fool me twice. The third time, maybe it will finally be clear to this group that, you know, if you don't want to be having to potentially battle out against the Dallas Stars or the Wild, like, you you need to get it done. Because the difference between battling a Central Division opponent versus getting a Wild Card team can be everything. I mean, that first round matchup, in my opinion, is sometimes the most important. I, I, well, it's always the hardest for whatever reason. Yeah, you're, you're, you're right. Know that With all due respect to Seattle, you'd rather play <laughs> Seattle than either Dallas or Minnesota in the first round. Yeah, but, absolutely. So I think tonight, and also just, right, like this is a Central Division opponent. This is a great opportunity. I mean, the Penguins are a team that, yeah, you want to beat them for the points, but, you know, there's no necessarily, you know, familiarity in, in terms of a rivalry there. This Minnesota matchup should be important because when you're playing a team, the whole divisional rivalry night that we, we, we pump up at Ball Arena, but that does matter more. And, and it is important to set a precedent. We've also not slept the wild in the regular season since I want to say 2017, 18. This will be a great opportunity to, to really just make a statement. You never know what plays into it when you do meet again, if you end up meeting again in the playoffs, to be able to say we won that whole regular season can play a factor into the mental 
face of opponent going into a game. But I, I definitely think that tonight, of all the nights that this opportunity has been on the line, that the team is more aware than ever of how important it is to get this done. Last one for you, Katie. Tonight, uh, Philip Gustafson expected to start in net. Uh, it's been about 60-40 Marc-Andre Fleury to Gustafson, but there are a lot of arguments that you could make that Gustafson has actually had the better year to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. Uh, between these two goaltenders, which one do you think fits better against the Avs? Is it Fleury based on his experience and success in the past or someone that's maybe a little younger, a little more agile than Gustafson? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's a tough question. And for me... I'm so I'm always so biased about anything to do with Flurry. Having grown up in Pittsburgh um, and watched him my entire career, he was one of my favorite players as a little kid. Um, so when I think of him, I always still think of the guy that led the, the Penguins to so many playoff runs and so many championships. So he's always going to carry a little bit more of a scarier presence in my mind, just based on his uh, his resume. That being said, I think you're correct in saying that Gustafson has really especially in this last stretch, been one of the best. I think there was a stat that I read about a few weeks ago where in the starts that he'd had, he had let up two or more than two goals only two or three times. I mean, this guy is really good at limiting opportunities. That being said, has he faced a ton of opponents that have the ability to score the way the Avs do? I mean, this team is rolling on a stretch of, like, if they don't put up five goals or more, it's actually considered a bad night, which is crazy to think about. Um, so I do kind of feel like no matter who they face, this team is ready for it. I'm pretty sure we're getting Gustafson tonight. And so I think this group's going to be ready to, to just get as much traffic in front and challenge him. That's part of what's been so good about this group lately and why we've seen this increase in scoring. They've started challenging goalies so much more. And a lot of that has to do with Val Machushkin being in his best form that we've probably seen all year. He's on a seven-game streak for points, and his presence in front of the net has been noticeable, and that's a nightmare for any goaltender, whether it's Fleury Gustafson or anybody else. Well, Fleury gained a couple fans in town here after he decided he wanted to go ahead and fight Jordan Bennington. So, I mean, uh, there's no problem there. Anybody that's Uh, willing to take on Bennington is going to get a a, a round of applause. There's at least a little attaboy uh, from folks in Colorado. So, yeah, no problem. The most despised player from a Colorado <laughs> fan point of view in yeah. all of the National Hockey League is Jordan. Mark Andre Fleury decided he wanted to fight it. But they won't face Fleury tonight. They'll face Gustafson. Fleury did lose to the Avs in the previous appearance. Maybe that has something to do with it. You will want to make yeah. sure you follow Katie. Katie underscore Goss, G-A-U-S on Twitter. And of course, catch her on every Altitude broadcast over there. Uh, our Avalanche broadcast, pardon me, on Altitude TV. Uh, thanks for the opportunity to, to uh, join us today. I, I, I really valued being able to be able to talk to you about this. I know we've been trying to set this up, and it's been a little while, so I'm glad we could make it work on it the day worth the wait. of the biggest game of the year. Thanks so much, Katie. Thank you guys so much. Go Avs. All right, go Avalanche. Certainly that's what fans are talking about oh, tonight. She, she we is, will have... She uh, is great. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like I said, she, she covered every salient <laughs> point that we, it's taken us two days to address. Didn't need us. She did there it you, there you go. That's what happens when you get the professionals over there. But the, the uh, great job by Katie. Also, by the way, like if you stuck around last weekend, the Isabel Cup, the first ever championship cup, they're following the Abs and Coyotes game. Right. Uh, Katie was on the national ESPN broadcast yes. for that too. So uh, doing work in demand is tough to get her, but I'm glad uh, we were able she's, to see so. She's one of the best commentators. And, and we'll have an opportunity uh, to pay attention to this game a little bit as we tie a bow on the program. We'll do that next on My Life Sports.
This is Sandy Clough and Chandro Tar on Mile High Sports. Big game for the Denver Nuggets tomorrow. We haven't talked about them today. They will take on the Pelicans tomorrow, but there's time for that tomorrow. Obviously, the Avs and the Wild first place on the line in the Central tonight. The second game of the TNT doubleheader that will be uh, going on this evening, so you can make sure you catch that. That's one of the reasons we were able to grab Katie. Otherwise, she'd be deep in the middle of pregame stuff right now in production. So, a nice opportunity to talk to Katie Goss there from Altitude. But, Sandy, this game, the the injuries are going to be part of the story. Obviously, we know who the Avs are missing. Uh, but Minnesota's missing their top scorer, Kirill Kaprizov, who's one yes. of the one of the yes. quietly. You you like to talk about how in the NBA, Shea Gilgis-Alexander's yeah. one of the best stars that nobody well, talks about. You see Kaprizov is yeah, that I think kind of guy. He's uh, uh, under 25 guy. Right, twenty-four, uh, I believe. Yep, and and seventy-four it, points in sixty-five games this year. Alexander, yeah, yeah, and he's great. But just they, they've been able to compensate though. Uh, even they without have. him, they have not lost their ability to score. And uh, the point I'd make about this game is that uh, falling behind Anaheim one to nothing, as the Avs did the other night, uh, wasn't cause for much concern because you knew the game wasn't going to end one to nothing. Tonight, this game could it end one could to end one to nothing. So <laughs> if, if if you're giving up rather than scoring that first goal, that's a big deal. You can't afford to get a goal, certainly not two goals, behind this team because they will lock down defensively. And uh, I, I think they have a certain edginess and abrasiveness to their game, but they are far more skilled than your typical Minnesota Wild teams of the past, which has always mystified me because uh, in the uh, so-called state of hockey, uh, to me, um, one of the reasons that hockey is so popular uh, in not only the Twin Cities, but throughout the state of Minnesota is because it's played in an entertaining way. And all the college teams through the years, uh, up to and very much including the ones coached by Brooks, right? And right, there were actually sure. multiple Minnesota teams coached by Brooks uh, o- over the years. The great Herb Brooks, they, they played an entertaining style of hockey. He was hard driving. Uh, he was uh, often perceived as maniacal in his, his approach. But his teams were fun to watch. Always fun to watch. And the Minnesota Wild often have not been fun to watch. Jacques Lemaire was a terrific coach. But I mean, he played, during his playing days, he was a defensive-minded forward. Uh, and and certainly won a lot of games, but I thought they, it's interesting, they lost a couple of series to the Avalanche uh, in and around the mid-2000s, that they, uh, late 2000s, that they should not have lost. And then in 2013, they beat the Avalanche when the Avalanche had the yeah, better Yeah, both team. of these teams have actually had playoff series wins over the other when, quite frankly, they weren't the best. And, of, of course, the most memorable Minnesota winner of the Avalanche was turned out to be Patrick Waugh's last game in 2003 when the Avalanche were up three games to one in the series. And uh, Minnesota came back and won the series, including the seventh game, um, on a goal by Brunette, who later became an Avalanche mm-hmm. skater. If not a star here, he scored the overtime goal that brought an end not only to the Avalanche season in 2003, but to the career of Patrick Waugh. The Wild, of course, minus Kaprizov tonight. They will also not have Ryan Reeves uh, as well. Uh, uh, Philip Gustafson will be in net, not Mark andre Fleury, at least by all reports. 
this this game is one of those, Sandy, where you, you almost get in the way of yourself when you're trying to break it down too much. You look, look, these teams are both missing major parts. Neither it does not seem to significantly uh, derail either of these teams. You're, you're looking at, at two youngish goaltenders, Gustafson Younger, but guys that with not a tremendous amount of, of experience when you're talking about the top tier type of experience that you're looking for. This honestly feels like one of those games that uh, I, I don't know. I'm not even going to call it. I, th- I think your point is right. For the Avalanche, what you can't do is get far behind. You can't. You get two goals behind, it's probably over. Uh, you, you have, it would be best if you can score the first goal, but otherwise I'm... Stay not, out of the penalty box, the box and get that first goal. I am not going to bother really organizing more than that or try to even take a guess at what's going to happen. These are two good teams that are playing very good, very good hockey. I'm just looking forward to watching it tonight. I am as well. And the good news, not only tonight will you be able to watch the Avalanche and Wild, but tomorrow night, the Nuggets and the New Orleans Pelicans also, also nationally televised. Same station. Matter of fact, you can leave right the same right. same. Uh, back part of the doubleheader. So that's what we'll be looking at. Obviously, this evening has been fun talking with you. Thanks to everyone who interacts with us on the call and text line 303-831-1340. Always appreciate that. Thanks to Katie Goss from Altitude for joining us. Katie underscore Goss, G-A-U-S is the way to follow her. Thanks to Danny Bailey in the booth making everything sound good. Andrew Detmer making everything look good. I see Logan Aselius getting ready for the next show. That's what we need to clear space for. Afternoon Drive with Anilo Piro and Cody Rourke is next. For Sandy Clough, I'm Sean Drotar. We'll be back tomorrow from 2 to 4 p.m. like we always are. If you want to follow me on Twitter, you can do so at S-D-R-O-T-A-R because you and I will have a little bit more on the social media side coming up. We will. Very, very short span of time right here on My Life Sports.